That's right, episode 150. I feel like just yesterday I was finishing episode 30, but ever since uh, Felix has come on board, we've just been cranking them out two per week, so we're at episode 150. This is sort of a special episode because we just wrapped up the first ever Less Doing Live event. Now, if those of you who were there, thank you so much for being a part of it. It was so exciting for me. It's so amazing. and just I felt so much love from everybody, and... I can't wait to do it again next year. I'm really pumped up. And I'm still kind of decompressing, honestly, from everything that's happened over the weekend. So this is not sort of your regular episode. We'll be back with a normal episode for episode 151. But the interview today is with Christine Carter of Raising Happiness, really amazing author. And uh, we just had a, a wonderful, wonderful conversation. So... I hope you enjoy this interview, and I want you to know that there are some very, very exciting things in the works for less doing in the next several months, not the least of which is I'll give you a sneak peek if you check out lessdoinglabs.com as well as lessdoingbootcamp.com. You can see some of the new pages we've set up to get into our brand new membership site and the bootcamp program. Check it out. Let me know what you think, and see you in the next episode. And now for Feature Interview. So now I am speaking with Christine Carter, who is a sociologist and the author of The Sweet Spot, as well as Raising Happiness. So, Christine, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay. So I actually I want to kind of talk about both the books, but I mean, essentially, your big thing is really about achieving happiness and, and the... I guess the most scientific ways to do that. Yes, absolutely. I've for over a decade now studied well-being and happiness, positive emotions, and then also productivity and elite performance. I'm really interested in the um, notion that, I mean, actually, it's it's a more of a scientific fact now than a notion that we, you know, we don't have to give up happiness in order to be successful. So the literature around um, productivity and elite performance and sustaining elite performance is very telling in that. So, I, I, you know, people say, oh, you're a happiness expert. What I'm really concerned about is, is um, I, I just want to be more productive. I, I want to be successful. And, um, and so, you know, my whole position on it is that you really don't need to give up happiness in order to be successful. And in fact, it's very important that you not give it up. Yeah. Okay. So, I, I mean, we couldn't be more in line in our thinking, and this is really why I wanted to have you on here. I mean, if nothing else, the fact that, like, uh, on your page, is, it talks about how uh, you can achieve more by doing less, and you know, this is the less doing podcast, the less doing more living podcast. So, uh, we, <laughs> yes, <laughs> we have a half, we, we have a half an hour to talk, but I feel like I should have booked us for two hours. So, uh, basically, uh, how did you get into this work? 
Well, I was an overachieving perfectionist who was, um, you know, prone to happiness for sure, but also very anxious, and I was constantly sort of sabotaging my my happiness through over because of just overwork, basically. You know, I I grew up in a culture that pushed me to excel, and and actually I, I was really able to to excel. You know, I went to an Ivy League college and got my PhD, and um, but I but I was too exhausted to really enjoy the life that I had worked so hard to create. So this is was no small irony either, because at the point that I started to write the sweet spot and think about less doing and more living or how to achieve more by doing less, um, I was uh, had already been a happiness expert for 10 years, right? I knew what I needed to do to be happy in life. And in fact, I, I had many happinesses, you know, but I was really stressed and tired too. So yes. I had to reconcile those things. Right. And and so all my goal with less doing, I mean, it started out of the need to systematically attack stress basically. And my goal was to really reduce the, basically free up people's time so that they could reduce stress and really use their brains for the things that they wanted to use them for. So it's, it, right. it's, it's a very, you know, it's a very good point. It's like, great, you can achieve all this success and you can, uh, you know, have, have all this stress though, and you don't really get to enjoy it or use your time or use your brain really for the way you want. Right. Right. It's all, uh, you know, it's, it's been sort of taken over by the primitive instincts to just survive instead of using it for creative pursuits. So, I mean, what is your, as a sociologist, like how do you think that your, your sort of approach to this might be, might be sort of unique? I mean, I, I, know, I know a lot of the points in your book, obviously, and, and like strategically saying no, which I think is a great one. I want to attack that. But like as a sociologist, sort of how, how are you approaching this differently? Well, uh, because I have a sociological perspective, I'm always looking for the the uh, cultural beliefs that lead to certain behaviors that either inhibit happiness or uh, or inhibit productivity or creativity or foster it. So every you know we all exist in these social structures in families and schools and businesses, and um, and those social structures have uh, unique cultures. That, uh, that really do foster certain emotions and behaviors and inhibit others. And where I, I become just fascinated as a sociologist is where our cultural beliefs cr- are creating all this suffering, right? They're making us less productive and less happy. And, um, you know, when you think about the role of a society or a, of a culture, it's really to promote well-being among its members. So anyway, that's my perspective from a, a sociological um, standpoint is is a little bit different than a psychologist that's really just interested at the individual level uh, what we can do. Okay, and and what are some of the, the sort of practical things that you do to help increase productivity, or you know, tips for that you could share? Well, you know, along the same lines of thinking about this sociologically, I think one of the first things that we need to do is to question some of the big cultural beliefs around, particularly around busyness, right? So in our culture, we see busyness as a sign of success, of significance, certainly of productivity. 
Um, you know, in our culture, it seems like the busiest people or the most important people all have the most to do. They're all pressed for time. And we do, there, you know, we do have a historical socio, sociological understanding of why this might be. But in today's day and age, it's important to just stop and see that busyness is actually not a sign of productivity or significance or success. There is no correlation between perceived busyness and success or productivity. So it's, this is a great big lie that our culture tells us, and it leads us into this more is more, is more, more is better kind of a, a culture, that a little bit of work is good, more work would be better. You know, we're always looking for more of everything, more likes on Instagram, more prestigious job titles, more work so we can earn more money, so that we can buy more stuff, that that more is better mentality it really is, um, is quite happiness and productivity sab- sabotaging. You, you know what, what, what phrase I absolutely hate? It makes me my blood curdle, and it's so popular now, is I'm, I'm so I'm, I'm sorry I haven't got back to you or something like that because I've been heads down. Oh, my gosh. Down. Oh, that's so funny. I hate it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've been heads down. Yeah. It's, it's like, that's a, what does that mean? It's like, so, so you basically buried yourself in a computer and you have no like life outside that. And that's what it's, it's just, I hate that. And it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. It, it is. But it's like, it's a way to, it's just a new way of saying I've been busy. Right. And, and what we mean when we say that we're busy, what we mean is that we're overwhelmed. Right? We're sacrificing our own needs for the needs of our workplace or for our children or for whatever it, it may be. And what we know from a psychological standpoint about overwhelm and this sense of busyness when we report on being busy is that it looks more like what researchers call cognitive overload. And that, that is what you were talking about earlier about how stress kind of sabotages us. Cognitive overload makes it really hard for us to think clearly, to plan, to organize ourselves, to resist temptations, to resist the emails that are coming in constantly. Um, It makes it hard for us to connect with other people because we can't really access social information very easily. So the name of our daughter's boss or our boss's daughter. And it makes it really hard for uh, us to control our emotions. So it lowers our emotional intelligence as well. So, so basically, that you know, when somebody says I'm he- I've been heads down, it means I'm overwhelmed. I can't. I I'm not functioning to my potential. Right. I can't manage everything coming at me. And this is a common thing. I'm not saying it's a sign of weakness. This is, this is the state of where, this is where we are. This is where I was when I wrote the book. I think that there's, there are a lot of really practical things that we can do to get, work ourselves out of um, that place of overwhelm. It's just really important first to recognize when, uh, you know, how our beliefs about busyness, about more being better, uh, about um, about you know rest and you know we can talk about that about you know I was just going to ask you about your concept of, yeah I was just yeah. going to ask you about your concept of recess taking recess I'd love to talk about that yeah you know so here's here again is another really big myth we believe that just you know not being productive staring into space daydreaming taking any sort of recess right like going back to the school days is a waste of time. 
you know, it's kind of that this is the, the flip side of the busyness myth is, is that, you know, if busyness is a, sign, is a mark of character and a sign of significance, if I'm not busy in this one moment, if I'm not being productive in this one moment while I'm waiting in line at the grocery store or while I'm driving to work, then I must not be significant. I must be kind of lazy or lack character. It, it, we see stillness as a sign of economic insecurity, right? It threatens us. We feel very anxious about that. But it's a myth. What we know is that when we take a recess, when we take a break, when we stare into space, when we do something that allows our mind to wander, or when we do something that has no particular purpose at all. If I just walk outside and throw the ball for my dog for a while, even though I don't have to do that because the dog is fine with me not doing it, and I don't talk on the phone while I'm doing it, I just kind of let my mind wander and, and let myself enjoy watching the dog's sheer, you know, my dog is really fast and funny, so it makes me laugh, right? So if I just let myself pay attention um, to that, something amazing happens in my brain. So a lot of different things happen in our brain when we take those breaks. It is not unproductive time at all. One of the things is that the part of our brain that will come online is responsible for creative insight. So to me, the sweet spot, that place where we have our greatest ease, but also our greatest power or our greatest strength is, I mean, it is so well represented by creative insight, right? What could be easier or more powerful than that aha moment? Well, the only way to get that creative insight is to give yourself a break. If you sit down at your desk and your head's down all morning, not ever looking up, not just trying to forcing yourself to focus, focus, focus without a break, you might get, you might get some stuff done, but you probably won't come up with a very innovative solution to a problem, for example. You won't, you know, where do we get our insights? It's a cliche in our culture. Right. The shower. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Exactly. We get it in the shower. It is the only place where we can't bring our darn smartphones. <laughs> you know? I'm sure that there is there is there are people listening that have found a way to do it. But it's well, the only you, unfocused time that we have. You know, one, um, one of the recommendations that I always make to people, or not always, but often, is there's a you can get this thing on Amazon called Aquanotes, which is a waterproof post-it pad. And <laughs> I have one in my shower because it's a great place. You really do get good ideas, and it's really frustrating to lose those ideas. So I actually have that in my shower for writing down ideas. Okay, well, I would I would actually just caution a little bit uh, on that. So long as you don't aren't try, you aren't going into the shower trying to solve problems, right? Trying to focus on something, just letting your mind wander. Let it be a break. Um, you know the 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 other thing about this recess, why it's so important, and I wrote even more about this and in the sweet spot is that our um, our brain goes through different sort of waking cycles, for, for lack of a better way to um, put it. You know, we're kind of familiar with the fact that when we fall asleep, we have different sleep cycles and different stages of sleep. And the same thing is true about when we're awake, different brain waves at different parts of the time. We, we, we can't just stay in one mode of operating. We're, we human beings were just not designed that way. And so when we force ourselves to focus, 
without taking a break, we basically create jet lag during our day. We, we exhaust our ability to think in that way. Our brain needs to switch over, and so we find ourselves fighting uh, it constantly. And, you know, we have lots of ways to do it. We can still feel productive by checking our email, even if we're not really accomplishing anything or we can have a cup of coffee or you know what I mean we have ways of artificially kind of stimulating our attention span but um, but much better is to just go with the way your brain was designed to operate which is to take breaks to um, to you know focus for 40 or 60 minutes. Sometimes some people can go a little bit longer than that, but not much longer. And, you know, 90 minutes is really the, the limit for, um, for most people in their sort of everyday work. And then taking a, taking a break, going out and playing, doing something that is not on your task list anywhere. Yeah. I, I mean, I couldn't agree more with all of that. I, are you familiar with the Pomodoro technique? No, what's that? Okay, so the Pomodoro technique has been around for a while, but basically it says so you're supposed to work uh, for 25. Sorry, uh, is it yeah 25 minutes, and then you take uh-huh. and you take a five minute break, and uh, it's a cycle, and you and you st- actually have an alarm, and you interrupt yourself if you have to, but you take that five minute break, and then you go back and you do them over and over again. But there was a really cool study, and this is just from what you were just saying, that apparently the optimal ratio is to work for 51 minutes and take a 17-minute break. Uh, oh, yeah. That, yeah, that's the, I was just going to say that. There is a study. It, and that is, that's actually just, um, I believe we're referring to the same study, where they just looked at the most productive people in, um, in a given environment. I think they looked at, across several different workplaces and different types of workplaces. And, um, and it was not a small study. But um, not a huge one either, probably. But they, they just looked, they, they had um, peers rate each other and said, who are, who are the most productive people among, among you? And so there is a little bit of a perception thing. But we also know, who's, who is it in your environment that's getting stuff done? And, um, and the most productive people for every 51 or 52 minutes of, of uh, work that they were doing was taking a 17-minute break. Yeah. So now, they, were, they had 17 minutes of just totally like unproductive time. Right. So they were the chit chatters. They were the they were the time wasters. You know that so we ha- we have this perception that um, that that doing nothing is a waste of time, and of course it's it's not. Yeah. Right. So. Exactly. Uh, now you've also, of course, you did a lot of work in terms of parenting and raising happy children. So how how yeah. does how does this work apply, or, or or doesn't it? But I mean, what are some of the there for raising well, happiness? Well, it applies a lot, actually. I mean, so raising happiness, a huge component, of course, of raising happiness is learning how to be happier yourself. So starting there, you know, this is all sort of tied in. And for me, it was really important to model. Um, creativity and innovation and really engagement in my work for my children without also modeling stress and overwhelm and exhaustion, right? I wanted them to have a model for how to, how to be, you know, how to have it all basically, right? How to be engaged in your family life and have really meaningful, fulfilling work, but not be so tired all the time. I mean, I was so exhausted all the time. And so I, I might've been modeling, success in my career for my kids, but I, I certainly wasn't showing them a lifestyle that they wanted, you know? Um, 
So, you know, and now as my kids are, um, are adolescents, I have four adolescents, um, it's really a, the stress piece of it is really important to me that they, they learn, you know, as they get into high school, they really need to learn how, how to be productive and how to sustain their highest performance, how to fulfill their potential without also um, compromising their mental health. So, uh, and, and uh, that's, uh, it's a very good point, you know, about basically like be, being the example, you know, you want to be happy. Yeah. And so you have four children. Yeah. And, and how, and what are their ages? They're 12, 13, 14, and 15, just about. So two of them wow. are stepchildren. I remarried a few years ago and I have three daughters and um, a son and they are, three of them are in middle school and one of them is a ninth grader. So this is, there's no more perfect time for me to have figured this out and, and be modeling it for them because kids do what we do. So, you know, the, the key thing with kids around the sweet spot and also raising happiness, just overall happiness, is, um, is technology use, right? We adults need to model strategic technology use or, you know, the, and, and talk to our kids about how addictive these technologies are and how they will suck us dry, right? They will, they will ruin our attention span and, um, and prevent us from doing our best, most creative work if we don't establish a structure for ourselves so to make these technologies work for us. So lots of discussions in my household about turning the phones and iPads and everything, computers off an hour before you go to sleep, charging them outside of your bedroom, never bringing anything, you know, any form of technology into the dining room, looking out the window while we're driving instead of at a device, you know, all these things that are blazingly obvious in some ways are really, it's just a constant drumbeat of instruction from me. Yeah, that's, and that's, that, that's very smart and that makes a lot of sense. I, I'm curious about your take on this particularly about because there's there's all sorts of different studies and feelings on this, but um, arguing with your spouse in front of your children. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, my thoughts on that are that it, for for most cu- couples, it's really inevitable. And what the research shows is that it's not so much about whether or not you argue in front of your kids, but how you argue and whether or not you resolve those arguments in front of your children. That's my that resolution yeah. piece of it is the most important piece. They need to see it's realistic, right? In in um, in human relationships, we have conflicts. And one of the key tasks of childhood that I feel like some people never learn is to repair a, a crack in a relationship, right? So we're constantly doing things that are annoying or offensive or hurtful to the people that we care most about. And even when we do them unintentionally, it's, they're still mistakes, right? So it's, it's actually, when you argue in, uh, with your spouse in front of your kids, it's really can be an opportunity for them to learn how to, um, to be effective in getting what you want in your relationship, how to set boundaries, how to, um, how to negotiate for your needs, but also the, the more common piece of it is to show them how to repair. So, so many um, couples get into fights in, 
get, you know, they start the fight in front of their children and then they quickly move to behind closed doors to try and hash it out and resolve it. And that's pretty hard for kids. So my practical solution is just because at least for me, I'm a little on the hot headed side. Um, I, you know, when I, when I'm prone to, to go for it, <laughs> to get into an argument, it's very hard for me to, you know, I know all the research around the, the first three minutes are the most important in terms of the outcome of the argument or whatever. So if I notice that I'm starting to get into it, I will say I'm not going to be very effective in communicating what I need to communicate until I've calmed down. And I will say that in front of the kids. And then we'll set a time to, I'll say, you know what, but I am going to need to resolve this before dinner or I'm not going to, it's going to ruin my dinner. So we're going to give it sort of 10 minutes and then we will take it behind quote closed doors and then come back out and say, okay, you, you guys all heard that, didn't you? This is what we agreed. This is what I would do differently next time. For me, that's what it always is. I'm always the one who is like, okay, this was the mistake that I made. <laughs> it would have been much more effective if I could have led with this. Here's, the, here's what the miscommunication was, and here's how we repaired it, right? What? I mean, we do this so often, the kids laugh at us. Sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I mean, so as someone who, as you said, you know all the research, you, you, I mean, you know this stuff, but you're still a human being. You know, what, what do you think is the area that's most challenging for you in terms of both being a parent and also being productive and happy yourself? You know, I, um, what is most challenging for me? You know, I still find it uh, really hard to get my family to um, understand that I can't multitask. I don't even want to multitask. And that my sort of, the thing that I struggle with is I'm so snappish and irritable when I'm focusing on something and then somebody interrupts me. And, and I'm in a, um, a place right now where we recently moved and my office is between the pantry and the television, right? It's terrible. And it's not a long-term situation, but um, I'm, it's constantly dealing with the interruptions. And what's hard in a family, and when you work from home most of the time, which I do, um, although I'm longing for my office outside um, <laughs> of the house, is that uh, is is helping people understand that it's not personal. If you come in and you're looking for attention from me, even if it's just a quick question and I'm irritable with you, that is the normal, that, I mean, for me, I can say that is a normal reaction to any sort of interruption because I can't, I get, I get momentarily overloaded and then I can't manage my emotions, right? And I just, so it's not personal. It's not that I don't love you. It's not that I don't want to give you attention. It's that, um, it's that I can't do both of these things at one time. And that is not my failing. This is the way the human brain was designed. We don't actually multitask. Right. We just switch back and forth between tasks. And so I think about um, people who bring their work home. I mean, not everybody works from home or even works. Um, but parents, are, I feel like we're, we're all constantly dealing with this because because there is always our devices are, you know, so many people have computers in the kitchen, for example, and it is so hard to be a really good attentive parent when your attention is divided. And so 
So trying to find some common understanding of what can and can't be done is, um, is an ongoing negotiation uh, in, in our household. Gotcha. You know, I tell my children stories about my grandmother who lived to be 104 and she had a really hard life, but she was never stressed, right? And I think that's why she lived so long and was so happy. So it wasn't that her life wasn't difficult. It was unbelievably difficult. It's that the difficulties, she always had the re- found the resources that she needed in order to, um, to mount them. And the way she was in the world it was so instructive for me. Like she was teaching me to cook. And every time I would ask her a question, it drove me crazy then, but now I see the, the benefit of it. She would put down the potato that she was peeling, put down the peeler, <laughs> turn and look at me, think about the question and then answer it. Yeah. Right. Instead of, I'm like, can't you peel the potato while you answer the question? She would never try to do two things at once, even if it was a physical task and a thinking task, which is like the one area that I always am kind of multitasking, right? So just thinking about like the, our lowest stress state in our families or in our workplaces, in our lives, is doing one thing at a time, whether it's taking a break or focusing on our work, or checking our email and responding to it and crossing that off our list. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's awesome. So, all right, well, the, the last question that I always like to ask on these interviews, uh, and you can interpret this however you like, uh, but what are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective? Uh, to be more effective, okay, my first piece of advice is to find ways to decrease your busyness and your overwhelm. So taking recess would be a good um, way mm-hmm. to do that. My second piece of advice would be to really pay attention to your social connections, that you're the greatest source of both ease and strength often comes from our connections to other people. So I don't mean like connect connections on social media. I mean your actual felt sense of connectedness to the people around you, both strangers and in your intimate relationships. So the easiest thing that we can do in a given day is to increase our sense of social connection, which makes us relax and makes it, and also we draw strength from it, is to just look people in the eye as we go about our daily business, right? Talk to strangers. It's a total myth that talking to strangers is a dangerous thing to do, right? So smile and chat up the barista or make eye contact with the person who's coming off the bus before you get on or, you know, chat with the the grocery checker and pay her a compliment, right? So any of these things that you can do to actually connect with other people, hug, become a hugger, right? If you're comfortable with that, giving other people hugs is one of the best ways to signal to your nervous system that you're safe. And when nice. you, when your nervous system feels safe, a different part of your brain is, you know, you, you go from the sort of self-preservation survival mode into real creative, high functioning. So that was just two. Yeah. <laughs> Do we have time for a third? Of course, please. <laughs> okay. The third would be to really upgrade the software in your brain for autopilot, right? Like to think about um, how, what habits you're in and how to make I mean, we now have all the neuroscience we need to learn how to get into new habits, right? We understand how that unconscious brain 
pathway is is created. And um, I have a whole free online class, Cracking the Habit Code, if you're interested in that. Um, So the way to stay in your sweet spot over the long haul is to develop daily micro habits that really channel your brain's natural ability to run on autopilot. Most it, our brains like to be on autopilot. Yes, they um, do. So, so that your habits really bear the burdens that, that in our culture we lean on willpower to shoulder. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I, those are, those are fantastic. This is, we, I, <laughs> I, I, I want to have you back on very soon actually, cause I think there's a lot more to talk about, but for, thank you so much. And where can people find out more about you? And, and we're going to have links to all your books and everything, but just what, what's the best URL for you? ChristineCarter.com. Perfect. Well, Christine, thank you. That was awesome. Really appreciate your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to the less doing podcast. If you want to find out more information of the show, we would love to hear from you. You can go to lessdoing.com where you can look at Ari's blog, see the show notes for this episode, and also look at all the other episodes before this. If you want to send us a voicemail, we would love to hear from you and we'll play it on the show. You go to lessdoing.com, click on contact, and look on the right side of the page where you'll see a, a send voicemail button. Click on that and go ahead and record an audio message for us. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter. Ari's Twitter handle is at Ari Mizell, and mine is at Felix Bird. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. See you next time.